If you have your Bibles, you can take those out and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you um, don't have a Bible, you can use one of those chair Bibles that's in front of you. Hopefully there's one close by, and it's page 991. Y'all good? All right. Start in verse number eight, and we'll finish up the chapter. I desire then that in every place the men should should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let us pray. Father, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word, your word, the word of our God will stand forever. And we believe that, Lord. Lord, we would pray that you would be near to us. As I think about the difference between public speaking and preaching, the difference between a TED talk and rightly dividing your word is your spirit. And so would you please, Lord, would we be aware, would we be close to your Holy Spirit during this time, both in the preaching of your word and in the receiving, the hearing of your word. Holy Spirit, be busy cultivating fertile ground in our hearts as we think about this timely text, we think about this controversial text. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, you could be seated let me quickly just welcome you, um, just take a, just a second to welcome those of you that are here in person with us, and those of you that are joining um, with us online. Um, I said last week that this is probably one of the most controversial texts in all of the Bible, and now you, you believe me now that you hear it, right? Some of you are sitting here, you're thinking, all right, pastor, what are you going to do with this text? Well, hold on over the next like 40 plus probably minutes, um, we're going to get there. We're going to do something with this text. And and, and, I, and, and like, this is kind of a complex text on one hand, but on another hand, let's just be honest. There's nothing really in this text that's that difficult to understand. It may be controversial, but it's not really complex. I mean, the words that Paul is using are all 
common words, simple words. Yes, there's a few things like the whole, they'll be saved through childbearing that you got, hey, unpack that for us. But for the most part, this text is very much straightforward. Now, it doesn't answer all of our questions we may have about women's roles and women's roles in the church, but it certainly answers some of those questions to which we're going to talk about. What makes this text difficult to swallow is that it confronts so many of the idols of our own hearts, and it confronts so much of, of, the, of the gods of this culture. It confronts our own hearts, and it confronts many of the gods of this age. And what I, like I said, what makes this text difficult is, is the fact of the culture that we live in. But the reality is, as those of us as Christians, what we, what we don't want is we don't want, we don't want the culture to shape the way that we read and understand and apply God's word. But rather what we want is we want the Bible as a way to shape and to understand the way that we read and understand the culture around us. The reality is that something is shaping you, something is influencing you, and either it's the truth of Scripture or it's something else. Maybe it's your own intuition, your own fleshly wisdom, the culture. Something else is influencing the way that you think about things, the way that you think about God, the way that you think about the church, the way that you think about men and women, and even the way that you think about a thousand other things in our culture. That we live in a culture that the majority, a growing majority of people would deny the reality that there are two distinct sexes and genders. Forget the very fact that God has made our differences. He's put them on the front of us, that they are in our anatomy. They're, they're rooted in, in, in the truth of that. Forget that. But we're li- we're, we live in America in a growing egalitarian culture a culture that says men and women are the same and should always be able to fill all the same roles, never mind that we're different, never mind that we each have been made in God's image and women are to reflect God in a way that only women can and men are to reflect God in a way that only men can. Throw all of that aside by the culture. We live in a culture where authority is the antichrist of this culture. Rebellion is applauded and lauded and encouraged in our culture. And heaven forbid one of us ever be told we can't do something or we need to do something. Never mind that the authority of good and godly leaders, whether they be governmental leaders, pastors and elders, husbands or fathers, that they are to be received as a gift from God and part of God's good, loving, perfect design. They're coming from a gracious father. The reality is this text is so countercultural, is it not? But listen to me. It was countercultural in Paul and Timothy's age. That I'm sure as Timothy shared this letter from the Apostle Paul to the hearers, to the church, both Jews and Gentiles in the city of Ephesus, I'm sure that as they heard that, they were shocked. I'm sure they probably thought, oh, the audacity. What is the Apostle Paul doing? Like he's committing heresy. Like he's gone liberal. How could the Apostle Paul say something as audacious as let women learn? And that's what he declares. In fact, I would say that's the leading command of the scripture is to let 
women learn. And the truth is, in our culture, this text confronts both the idol of feminism as well as the idol of misogyny. The biblical Christianity, when we read in this text, it does not suppress women, but it celebrates women. And the role of women in the church is a vital and a prominent role. And our desire, just for clarity's sake, our desire at the Point Community Church is that we would be a church that celebrates all that women can do in the church. We want to be a church where a deaconess like Phoebe in Romans 16 is commended. We want to be the kind of church where women, Proverbs 31 type women, are, are, are praised in the gates, which means they're praised in public. We want to be the kind of church where women like Ruth and Esther are held up as great examples to all Christian. We want to be a place where women like Mary are, are held up as an example of worship. You remember Mary, the one who burst into the room where Jesus was teaching in a room full of probably mostly men, and Mary comes in and she takes a, a, a jar of expensive uh, oil mixed with perfume and she breaks it open and she begins to anoint Jesus' feet. And remember Judas um, Iscariot, you know, the one who always had his hand in the money bag, the one that will betray Jesus. Judas Iscariot sets out to like mansplain what's happening here. And he's like, you know, that money should have been spent. You should have sold that jar of oil and you should have spent that money to feed the poor, to take care of people. And Jesus is like, stop. What she has done is what needs to be done. What she has done has been proper and good. We want to be a place where a godly couple like Priscilla and Aquila can listen to a young buck preacher like Apollos and, and, and hear him and yet cringe a little and then invite him over into their home and sit him down on the couch and then explain God in a more accurate way to him to correct him a little bit. Like that's what we see in Acts the 18th chapter. We want to be a church where women are learners and they are learning rich and robust theology, rich and robust truth so that they can make disciples of other women like we see in Titus 2. And let me just say this on the front end, as a caveat, as I've kind of already alluded to, I can't answer all of the questions that you may have about women in the church and women's roles and what can they do and all of these things. In fact, this week as I was reading and studying, I saw where um, two of my favorite uh, theologians had and commenta- uh, guys that write commentaries that they had come together and they had tag team and they'd written a commentary called Women in the Church. And I was like, gosh, it's by Tom Schreiner and uh, Andreas Kostenberger. And I didn't even know these dudes had ever gotten together, let alone done a work. And I saw it and I got excited because I was like, man, I need to read that. And then I looked and it was 450 pages long. And I was like, well, I got some other stuff I got to do. It'd take me six months to read 450 pages. And then as I began to look even more at the book, it was simply an exposition on this very text. And I've got 34 minutes left. So we can't answer all of the questions that we have, but let me do the best that we can in unpacking what Paul is saying to Timothy. I'm going to kind of put my outline, will be up on the screen. I'm not even going to, in, in, a, in an effort to save time, I'm not even going to read it, but that'll just kind of like show you my notes as I've kind of looked at this text this week and the kind of the headings that I put on it. Verse number eight, we'll look at verses eight through 10. And then for the rest of the time, we'll just take them one verse at a time. Paul says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, 
and gold or pearls or costly attire. Just looking to see if some of the some ladies be like taking their earrings out, you know. Last week, my wife had a braid in her hair. She's like, you read that text. I thought, you know, we'll get there. But what, but with, this is the important part, verse 10, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And what Paul does in verse number eight, we covered this last week, is he singles out anger and disputing as unhealthy male tendencies. The women in the room said, amen, right? The men in the room, we feel that. We say, Amen. And now what he's doing in verses 9 through 10, we balance off of this instruction with a mention of a female tendency, an unhealthy concern for bodily appearance. Now, just like in verse number 8, Paul's not accusing every man of being a hothead. Some of you men aren't like that. Some of you men are laid back. And neither is he accusing every woman of being vain. But what he is saying here is that the church should be free from the bane of male competition and combativeness and aggression. And likewise, the church should be free from the distraction of women's preoccupation with appearance. See, this passage isn't to be carried out in a legalistic or in a wooden fashion or interpretation. Again, if you, this morning, if you have a braid in your hair or if you have on pearl earrings or a pearl necklace or gold somewhere on you, like don't feel like you're in sin. Don't think that we're gonna ask you to leave because that's not what the problem that Paul is addressing. The problem isn't with pearls or braids or gold or any of those things that ultimately the problem and the problem that Paul is going after is the problem as it is always, the problem is with our hearts. And the heart of a woman who wants to draw attention to herself by what she wears, whether it's sexual attention or attention to her affluence and status, is a woman with a wayward heart. Again, the context for 1 Timothy chapter 2 is the public worship gathering. It's the church assembled together. And he's saying, be careful of a woman who has a wayward heart. Let me also just say this, that the problem with men is our hearts as well. Nowhere in the Bible, including this passage, do men, can men secretly lust after a woman and then blame it on that woman? Well, if she didn't dress like that, then I wouldn't have this problem that we as men and we as humans, let me just, we as humans, we're always held accountable. We're always held culpable for our own sins, including the sins of our hearts. But what Paul is getting at in this text is simply this, deeds trump dress. And the reality is what we can wear or what we wear can express our hearts. Can it not? Yeah, it absolutely can. What we wear can express our hearts. So Paul's saying, don't choose outfits or accessories that draw attention to your figure or your financial status. Beautiful women in the church are those who do good deeds, good works, live out the gospel with a lifestyle of godliness and service. Let me summarize that section under this. As practical application, ladies, this is what he's saying right here, you ready? Ladies, be more concerned. I think this is a good word for us. Ladies, be more concerned with that inward beauty, your spiritual maturity, your godliness, your, your life, the gospel being lived out and evidenced by good deeds and good works. Be more concerned with that than you are with your outward appearance. Because as Apostle Paul says, 
outwardly we're wasting away. Now, again, we wear makeup, put on some gold, put on some pearl, braid your hair, fix your hair, do all those things, but just let your concern be as concerned, if not, no, more concerned with what's on the inside, what's being renewed day by day, than rather than what's being put on the outside. Because inwardly, you're being renewed. Outwardly, you're wasting away. Gravity wins. Right? Gravity wins. And you can't combat that. You can't fight that. Verse number 11, and yes, we're going to move this fast. Verse 11 it's this countercultural command in the context. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Let a woman learn is the command. Ladies, you are to be learners. Like that's right there. It's one of our core identities of who we are. Ladies are to be learners. There are to be disciples. They are to learn the Bible. They're to learn scriptures. Like I said already, they're to learn robust theology, robust truth. We want both men and women to be set free by the power and the truth of Jesus. Jesus says, you will know my truth and my truth will set you free. And we want both men and women to be set free by that. We want both men and women to be growing in godliness through a knowledge of Jesus. And praise the Lord, we have that. I know that some of you ladies, you're listening to John MacArthur daily. Some of you ladies, I know there's a lady in our congregation that asked for a commentary series for Christmas, and she got it, and she was posted it on Facebook because she was excited about it. A Fort Martin Lloyd-Jones's 14-volume set of an exposition of the book of Romans. She's like, look what my husband got me, Woohoo! Everybody's like, well, are you kidding me? I was thinking, gosh, it's awesome. Many of you, I know there's another lady in our congregation who's currently reading Martin Lloyd-Jones's 600-page-plus exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. A conversation recently with one of our young ladies who's thinking about enrolling in seminary just because she wants to know more about Jesus and his word, wants to know it more deeply and intimately. Our women's DNAs and Bible studies have always been well-attended. You were digging in deep, and I praise Jesus for that, thankful for that. I remember years ago, I, I, like almost 20 years ago, I heard John MacArthur, I, I didn't even hear him in person. John MacArthur did a series of lectures at Southern Seminary, and somebody gave me that series of lectures on CD, and I got a hold of them, and I was listening as I was driving to work, going, still working in my dad's construction company. On the way, driving the Dodge Dakota up there, I just had that set of lectures on repeat. And I remember one of the things John MacArthur said was he said, pastors, go deep into the things of God. Go deep into him. Go deep into his word and watch your people follow and praise Jesus that we've been that kind of church that as we've gone deep together in the things of God, I don't know that I'm leading you as much as you're leading me, but we're pressing into the deep things of God and praise the Lord for that. Women are to be learners and what's the context in which they are to learn? Well, look at it, it's here quietly and submissively. Now listen, the problem isn't a cultural problem. It's not that the women in Ephesus were real rabble-rousers, and so, you know, Paul's writing to Timothy for this one particular issue. We know that because Scripture interprets Scripture. And in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 14, verses 33 through 35, Paul writes almost the exact same thing to the church at Corinth. 
Again, Scripture interprets Scripture. So even as we think about what is being commanded here, quietly and submissively, well, what does this mean? Is this silence absolute silence? What's it? No, it's not. Like, I welcome, like if some of you ladies want to say amen, and you're going to have a, se- a chance here in a second. Some of you ladies want to say amen, especially during this sermon. Like, please do. A muffled amen would help a brother out greatly. So this silence is not absolute silence. I mean, we also know that as we look in 1 Corinthians, we see that Paul says that there are women who are praying and prophesying in the church of Corinth, and he commends this. He doesn't prohibit this. The word used that Paul uses here for submissively and even quietly in other places in the New Testament, it's used to settle down a crowd. It's used in like Acts 22. There's a crowd and they're, they're, they're subdued, they're quieted. We know that in a crowd, there's probably still some rumbles of talking or whatever. It's used in another place in 2 Corinthians. So it's, not, it's meant to settle down, not total silence, but to settle down, to be quiet and to receive God's word. See, James says in James 1.21 that we're all to receive the word of God with meekness. And that's what's occurring here. See, this isn't a dialogue. This isn't a dialogue. We've not gathered together for a concert with a TED talk at the end. This is worship, what we're doing here as we've assembled. We're worshiping God. We're singing to God. And then all of us, but the pastor teacher silences our hearts and we receive God's word. I do it when Pastor Sean preaches. I sit right there and I hang on every word that he speaks. I receive it with a heart of meekness. I submit my heart and my mind and everything that I am, I submit it to him. And I want my heart and my mind to be free from distractions so that I can receive God's word. That hopefully you agree with us in our high view of the preaching of the Bible, the very thing that we're doing even right here that I would argue that what we're doing here is a means of grace and it is the primary means of grace by which the the disciple grows is by sitting under the preaching, having God's word taught and explained and applied, what we call expositing a text of scripture. We sing that sovereign grace song that says, show us Christ, show us Christ. Oh God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word until every heart confesses that Christ is Lord. And we believe that's what's taking place here, that this is something spiritual that's happening. This isn't an exercise in our flesh, neither in the flesh of our hearing nor in the flesh of our speaking here. But what's happening here is a means of grace as God's word is being authoritatively, and we'll get there, authoritatively taught and proclaimed and heralded to us. Verse number 12 is the prohibition. The prohibition is this. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, notice this in the text. I do not permit. That's a prohibition. So for some of you, you may walk away being like, well, I didn't agree with that sermon. I didn't agree with the conclusion that Andy came to. And hey, there's freedom for you to be wrong. No, there's freedom for you to disagree. I just see if you listen. But I would just say the responsibility lies on you because he's prohibiting something in this text. So if it's not what I'm about to tell you that he's prohibiting, what's he prohibiting? Because he's prohibiting something. I do not permit. Something is being prohibited. 
I believe clearly what is being prohibited is he is prohibiting women from exercising spiritual authority over men and teaching the Bible is an act of spiritual authority. We see this in Titus, the first chapter, under the qualifications of an elder. Paul says an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be, un- so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. And now watch what others. And also to rebuke those who contradict it. See, it's a work of authority. Authority is being exercised by the elder as he preaches and teaches God's word. Now, we believe that ultimately that authority is found in God's word and not necessarily in the man. That as I stand here and I preach, I come through the preaching of scripture, right? If I'm just up here talking about, you know, how to change the oil in the old Mazda, that's nothing. But as we open up the Bible and we begin to preach and exposit God's holy word that we just read about, grass is going to fail, flowers wither, but God's word is going to stand forever and ever and ever. And as a man, as I preach and proclaim the authority of scripture to us, I'm a man under its authority. And because of what I'm doing and because of this, I'm also a man of authority. That we're here to declare things here. That I'm a man as I preach and Pastor Sean, as he preaches and other elders that we may invite into this pulpit from time to time, they are men under commission and under God's authority. They're ambassadors, they're sent messengers as they preach God's word. What this text is saying, is the saying is that role is reserved for men and not for women. Now, it's not saying that a woman can't teach a man anything, even though you women in the room, though you can't teach a man anything. That's your time for your amen, right? It's not what it's saying there. No, the truth is women can teach men a thing or two. I know my wife has taught me tons about life and even about godliness. In fact, the faith was imparted to Timothy first by his mother and his grandmother. Eunice and Lois were the first ones that imparted the faith into Timothy. Women can teach us, but they are not to be pastor teachers. They're not to take the platform and they're not to authoritatively teach the scriptures to men. That's what Paul is saying. And you may go like, well, why? And let me first just like speak to your hearts. What if he didn't give us a reason? He does, and we're going to get there, but what if he didn't give us a reason? What if the why was just because that's what the Bible says? Would that be sufficient for you? Would that be sufficient to you? Um, almost, gosh, 20 years ago, Luann and I, we were being assessed as, uh, we thought about being church planters, and we were being assessed as church planters, not with Acts 29 Network, that, came, that comes later, but with another group. And in there, we, we kind of let the cat out of the bag about that we had a, 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 a biblical framework for the idea of what men are supposed to do and what women are supposed to do. So, you know, again, this is 20 years, almost 20 years ago. And we let that out of the bag. And at the end of their assessment, they recommended a book to us. They said, you know what? You should read this one book. And it's called, Why Not Women? And it's about why can't women be um, pastors in the church? And Luann says, well, I don't need to read the book. I already know the answer because the Bible says so, right? I mean, what else do you need? And yet, like, God knowing our own hearts, I think, 
he writes in his revealed, inspired word the, the reason. He gives us the rationale as to why, and we see that in verse number 13, the rationale giving as to why can't women be pastors and teachers and authoritatively preach the scriptures to the men? Why? Well, look, verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, sometimes people will go like, well, we understand and we have to do like good cultural hermeneutics when we're interpreting the Bible. We got to understand the culture. And at that time, the culture in Ephesus would have been, women would have been uneducated. That's why Paul's saying women should learn. And so when women come in and they adequately learn and they've been taught, then they can move into the role of teachers. And so they base it upon a culture of uneducated women. But that's not what Paul says here. That's not what God reveals in his word. He's not saying that the rationale isn't stated in and rooted in the culture, but rather the rationale is rooted in the pre-fall good design of our creator. Again, Adam and Eve, who's, who's formed first, all that, that's pre-fall. That's before they sinned. And what I said even last week, chapters one, cha- uh, Genesis chapters 1 through 3 are, are suffused all throughout this text of Scripture. In fact, think about this in Genesis chapter 1, verse number 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, what we see in this text of Scripture is two things. We see the unity and the diversity of humanity. Notice, men and women are both, he created them in the image of God. Men and women are both are created by God in his image. There's unity there. Both are equal in value. Both are worthy of dignity and honor. They're equal in beauty. Hmm. Maybe. We'll just leave it there. They're equal in beauty, yes. And here's the reality. Misogynists and chauvinists refuse, male chauvinists refuse to recognize the unity of both men and women. They fail to value the equality that both are created in the image of God to the glory of God. Next, he says, male and female, he created them. And this speaks to our diversity. And the reality is, is that liberal feminists fail to recognize the diversity. The two distinct sexes with distinct roles for men and women. And misogynists and feminists both, they show not just that they misunderstand men and women, not just that they misunderstand the Imago Dei, but let's even take it, again, we're made in the image of God. Let's take it one step further. The true misunderstanding is they misunderstand who God is and how God is made up. So the reality is, is that God is triune. That you and I, we worship a God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this isn't, we're going to put an illustration up on the board, now that, up on the screen. Now, that's not like a picture of God, but that's a helpful way for us to understand how the Trinity works. You have the Father, the Son, the Spirit. Each are not each other, and yet they all are God. And so what we see, even in this illustration, is we see the unity of the Trinity. They're all God. They're all divine. All three are equal in their essence, equal in their divinity, equal in the right to be worshiped as God. But they, are a, but they are diverse in function and role. There's also diversity within them. There is a division of labor, we could even say, within the perfect trinity. It is the Son who is incarnated, who comes to this earth and dies 
as a substitute for you and I. It's the son who is the propitiation offered up. Not the father, not the spirit. It specifically is the son. And the father is always in ultimate authority. That Jesus will say, I don't even speak a word unless my father okays me to speak it. In the garden, moments before Jesus' arrest and even his, and his um, trials and, and days, a day before his crucifixion, Jesus in that garden, he will pray, say, Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. That's the son showing submission to the father as the father is in authority over him. The spirit is submissive to both the father and the son. There's no inferiority in God. Jesus will say, I and the father are one. But what we see in the Trinity, in the economy, in the relationship of the Trinity is divine deference. And you could write that down. I want you to look that up later because that's not a word we use often, but it's a divine deference. That's what we see. In, the, in throughout the Trinity. We see um, that the Father lives to glorify the Son. That's what we mean by this idea of deference, that the Father, even though he's in ultimate authority, he lives to glorify the Son. Think about what, whenever you hear the Father's voice being heard in the New Testament, in the gospel accounts, what are the types of things that he is saying? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him, obey him, like worship him, follow him. That the father is in deference to the son, even though the father is in authority and the, and the son is in submission. And yet there's this deference of living to glorify. And then what's the son do? He lives to glorify the father constantly. The son literally gives his life to glorify the father over and over, right? Always pointing up to the Father, always. And he gives his life to glorify the Father. And you and I, as men and women, we've been made in the image of God. Unity and diversity and a division of duty in humanity. Roles of authority and roles of submission that are to be carried out in great deference one to another. That is why women are prohibited from teaching men from the office of pastor-teacher. Because there is a division of labor established by God in his good, perfect, pre-fall design. Now, certainly, as we say, sin wrecks everything. And, that, and, and, and all of that that I just talked about, that notion of deference, that notion of authority, that notion of submission, all of that gets wrecked in the fall, in the curse. But just because sin has come in, it doesn't change the fact that we are to reflect the good design of our creator. And where should this good design, this pre-fall design, where should this be lived out and exemplified? Not in the world, although it should and it's bound for the world, but ultimately, where should it point to? Who were the first ones saying, hey, we're the ones that want to take this pre-fall picture of the kingdom of God and we want to live it out. Who are the first ones that? The church. We, as the redeemed people of God, we are the ones to embrace the goodness of everything that God has created in Genesis 1 and 2 and and agree with God that, yes, that is very good and live that out in a culture that constantly looks at what God created in Genesis 1 and 2 and wants to call it bad, evil, wrong, not a good design, not the way that things should be done. Again, read Genesis 1 and 2 
Make a list of everything that God created and everything that God instituted and then get on Facebook and see how many of those things are under attack time and time again by our culture that wants to say, no, it is not good. Verse number 14. And Adam, he says, was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. You know, this is, this is where it gets, a, I think, a little tricky. I don't think what Paul is saying here, I don't think this is example number two as to why women aren't to be pastor teachers. I don't believe, and this is one where I can be wrong, I don't believe that what Paul's saying here is, look, you know how gullible women are. Like, I don't think that's what he's saying. And I would just say, like, because the reality is, I know some of you men, and you could be really gullible too, right? Some of you all are driving around pickup trucks that you're going to be paying on for the next seven years. One time, Luann and I, in our first year of marriage, there was a, a we got a knock at the door. I remember because we were living over Evergreen Road, and it was the, the rainbow vacuum cleaner salesman came in, and he's got all of his boxes and stuff, and says, hey, can I show you this vacuum cleaner? And and he came to the door to me because he probably wouldn't have got in the door if he just saw Luann. And I say, yeah, come on in. And so this guy comes in and he goes through the whole spiel and tells us why our brand new vacuum that we just got, you know, a couple of months ago as a wedding gift was a piece of junk and why his vacuum's so nice. And at the end of it, I think we ask him, okay, so how much is your vacuum cleaner? And it seems like it was like 1,500 bucks, right? I mean, again, this is 25 years ago, 1,500 bucks. And so we look at each other and we're like, uh, thanks, but no thanks. And then this sales guy digs in deep. And he goes like this, he goes, well, I understand what you're saying, but can I just share this personal thing with you? Right now, the corporation is doing this incentive that if I sell four more of these vacuum cleaners, I get a free all expense trip paid, paid trip to Las Vegas. And I've always wanted to go to Las Vegas. He says, would you buy one of these vacuum cleaners so that I can fulfill a dream by going to Vegas? And you know what I thought? This poor guy. I'd like to go to Vegas too. I think we should help him out and let him go to Vegas. That's, I'm not, that's what I thought. And before I could get a word out, Luann was like, no. Like, we'll keep the $1,500 and we'll be the ones to go to Vegas. We're not sending you to Vegas. And the guy was like, oh, okay. And I remember it was raining. And he went outside, he was standing by the road because his buddy had dropped him off in the rain. Like the reality is, is men, we can be just as gullible. I don't think this is reason number two pointing to the, the gullibility that happens in the fall. But what I think happens, what I think this is, is rather this is an example of what happens when the good design of God is subverted. That what happens, what happened on that fateful day when Adam and Eve sinned against our creator and sinned against our loving God is what happened on that day is that Adam failed to lead and to protect his wife. Adam had been tasked with authority and Adam failed to exercise that authority. Not over Eve, although he had authority over Eve, but not over Eve, but Adam was also entrusted with authority over every living creature, over every living animal, Adam has authority over that. And when Satan comes in to tempt Eve, he doesn't appear as like what we picture the devil. He doesn't show up with the, 
pointy horn, you know, horns and a, and a pointy tail and a pitchfork. But what does he show up as? As a snake. And Adam should have known, I've got authority over that snake. And yet what we see in Adam is we see, again, what I said last week, we see it over and over again, men. It's our problem that we have to bear. Passivity when it comes to spiritual things. Passivity when it comes to leadership. Passivity when it comes to headship. Passivity from speaking out and protecting his wife. And certainly Eve comes from out from under that headship and protection of her husband. And I think what Paul is saying is when the good design of God is subverted, it isn't followed, when it's upset, what happened here is all of creation is plunged into the fall. What he's saying to us as churches is trust my word, trust my design. You may not like it, you may not agree with it, but trust it and follow it. And when you don't follow my good design, bad things happen. You're like, well, what would what, what be so bad if we let Luann get up here and, and preach? Come over to my house. Luann's probably a, Luann's a better preacher than I am. Ask my kids. They'll tell you right now. But like, what would be so wrong in that? Let me tell you what would be so wrong in that. God would be dishonored by it. And thus his church would be hurt by it because we would be disobeying his word and we'd be disobeying his good design that he set forth in creation. That's that's what's at stake. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that it's, it's shameful. Pat, churches that have pat, women pastors, what he says is they should be ashamed of themselves. Women that stand up before men and preach, he says that's a shameful thing that's occurring there because they shows that they don't trust the Lord. They don't trust his word. What Paul is also saying here in this text is that women are transgressors as well. See, all throughout Paul's writings, Paul always lays the burden of the fall at the feet of Adam, not Eve. Read Romans chapter five. It's Adam's fault over and over and over again. And here in this text, I think he's reminding the women in the congregation that you too are transgressors, that you too have sinned here and that Eve is under the curse as well. And just like we said last week, just as the curse falls upon Adam and it extends to all males in particular ways, so the curse comes to women and falls upon women in particular ways. We see this in Genesis chapter 3, verses 16. God is speaking to Eve here, but he's speaking to all of your ladies, all of you. He's speaking to your great, 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 great grandma here. And here's what he says. He says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Now hold on to that for two minutes. And again, all you ladies, you, that, ladies that have born children, that was your time to say, amen, right? That's universal. That's true. That happened, right? That's happening. But then look at what follows. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. That, that doesn't just mean like you all can't decide on where to eat out, like on a, on a Tuesday night, right? What do you want? I don't know. What do you want? Well, I was thinking tacos. Well, I was thinking anything but tacos. What do you think? And like, it's not what he's saying. Your desire is not contrary to your husband. But then he says, he follows up by, he shall rule over you. He's talking about that tension. He's talking about the very thing that some of you may feel in your hearts. The reason why this text runs against the grain of your heart 
The reason why this text causes you to bristle, it's the fall and the curse. It's Eve's sin being passed down to you. But I want to hold on to that Genesis text. We'll come back to it. But let's look at what he says as, um, as, as the good news. Because verse 15 contains some good news in it. Now, it's got some bad news in it, and then it's good news. But look at what he says in verse 15. Yet she, speaking of all the women, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, first of all, is this verse does not teach that the only women in heaven will be those who have borne children. Like, that's not what this verse teaches. Again, we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And we know from all over, multiple, multiple, multiple Scriptures that there's only one way of salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This, this doesn't upset that. This doesn't change that. In no way does this, that's what the New Testament is clear on. But what Paul is getting at here is that childbearing is an illustration of the gospel. See, there's pain in childbirth. I've been in that room two times. I don't know whose idea it was to let men in that room. It was a day when men stood outside and smoked cigars, right? And now we're in the room. No, it was such a high honor. I don't know if there's been another time that I've respected and loved my wife anymore. than in that moment of excruciating pain so that we could bring a two children into this world. And in the midst of that pain, that pain is a reminder of the curse and the fall. It is a proclamation of the reality of Genesis 3.16 that we just looked at, that there is great pain in childbearing, and you're experiencing that, you're feeling that, and yet with every child born, it's new life. Every child born is also a reminder of the promise that's found in Genesis 3, 15. So 16 in the pain, you're being reminded of the curse and the fall, but also as the new life comes, it should remind you of what Jesus has said or what the Lord has said in Genesis chapter 3, verses 15, when he said this, I will put enmity between you, speaking to Eve, between you and the, or I'm sorry, speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, Satan, Lucifer, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. In that text, what the Lord is saying is he is promising an offspring, that a child is going to be born, a child is going to come, and look at what he says he's going to do. He is going to bruise your head. And the word bruise there can also be translated. He's going to crush your head. There's going to be an offspring someday in the future that's going to come that is going to crush the serpent's head. It's going to destroy Satan and you shall bruise his heel. See, every child born on this side of Jesus, every child born on this side of the person, Jesus' humanity, every child born on um, this side of the incarnation, the death, the resurrection of Jesus should be a reminder of the seed of the woman who has come and who has crushed the head of the serpent. Every birth requires the sacrifice of someone else. In every birth, there is blood, 
and there is water, and it points us ultimately to the cross by which Jesus, from his side, he spews forth blood and water to redeem us. Every child being born, it points us to Jesus, the one who comes to rescue men and women from the curse of sin and to take away our transgression and to save us. So ladies, a word of encouragement at the end. Continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let us pray. Jesus, point our eyes upward toward you. That we may see you as good and right, and we may see you as the Savior who's come to die for us. That we recognize any tension that we feel in our hearts is probably, it's probably due to sin. It's that curse that's been placed any sense of self-righteousness that the men may feel, any sense of haughtiness that we may feel, any time that we may look down upon a woman and not see her equality and her beauty and her value, she gets to uniquely image you in ways that only she can. It's sin in our hearts. And Lord, my desire for us as a church well, I would love for us to always get it right, but we're sinners and we're not always going to get it right. And my desire for us as a church is that we would be willing to confront our own sinfulness. Maybe that the sinfulness that could fall under the, the label of feminism or the label of misogyny. We could, we could just be honest with those sinful proclivities. We can renounce them and we can come to you for cleansing and for healing, Lord. Jesus, point our hearts towards you. Take away our transgressions and save us. In your name we pray, amen.